Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. Welcome to Chet Talks. My name is Ray Dorsey. I'm a neurologist at the University of Rochester and the director for the Center for Health and Technology. I'm really excited about today's talk and excited to introduce Krista Drobak. Krista is one of the country's leading digital health policy experts. Over 20 years, it doesn't look good, but over 20 years, she's been a leader at the Illinois Department of Healthcare and Family Services, the National Governors Association, the Centers for Medicaid and uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, and on Capitol Hill. Ms. Drobak completed her undergraduate studies at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, my son's at the University of Michigan, and his master's in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Currently, she's a partner at Serona Strategies and the executive director of the Alliance for Connected Care, where for about a decade, I think, you've been the executive director and pushing for many of the health policy changes that we're seeing adopted in a matter of weeks. Uh, Krista, welcome to Chet Talks. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ray. So I'll start out with a provocative question. Is telemedicine the new normal? Uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, the, our biggest challenge prior to... Um, the onset of this pandemic was getting people to try their first visit. It really was a big barrier to just get people to try it. And so now we have um, a situation where people are using telemedicine regularly and liking it. I mean, I think I've seen at least three patient satisfaction surveys uh, in the past week, and they've all been really good. I think as telemedicine advocates and stakeholders, we all knew they would like it. We just couldn't get them to try it. So uh, that will, that has certainly changed. And um, so I think that it's going to be hard for health systems and provider offices to go back to a situation where they're um, having people come into the office for everything. They probably will have to um, bifurcate services a little bit um, to at least do, um, you know, some low acuity care through telemedicine. Um, a lot of policy changes have happened, by probably more policy changes in the last two months than the preceding 20 years. Can you highlight some of the biggest ones? Yeah, it's been head spinning. I mean, we've spent years chipping away, almost like feels like with a, you know, like a toothpick, just trying to get a little bit. Um, and then all of a sudden, like the sledgehammer came along and broke down every barrier that we ever tried to, um, to tackle, including Medicare, um, state licensing laws, um, you know, the, the technology pieces of this. I mean, it's amazing. We're almost to a point where they're allowing phone only. So, um, so it started the first supplemental um, bill. They, they said that the secretary would have the authority to waive the rural restrictions and the site restrictions in Medicare. And the secretary triggered that authority retroactive to March 6, which was when the bill passed. Um, there were some fairly unworkable program integrity provisions in it. Um, and CMS said, we're just not going to enforce program integrity provisions. So, um, and then eventually Congress in the third bill just stripped out those program integrity um, pieces. So we have to come back and really as a community figure out what are appropriate guardrails that are workable. But in the meantime, we're basically operating in an environment where you can have a one-to-one -one, um, you know, payment ratio for a in-office visit and a telemedicine visit in Medicare. And um, they waived some HIPAA, um, aspects of HIPAA to allow for non-HIPAA compliant platforms. So you can use FaceTime or Skype 
Um, they said that you could use the phone as long as it's video enabled, so you can use a smartphone. And then in this last go around, they did add a few um, E&M codes that are audio only. So there are some treatment and triage um, codes that are um, phone only. Um, they waived the Ryan Haight Act restrictions on prescribed and controlled substances. So for those who treat patients with mental illness, um, you can now prescribe um, those drugs over telemedicine. Um, so it, was, it really was a host of changes, and that was just at the federal level. And then the state started waiving, um, um, crazily waiving state, um, state licensing requirements, supervision requirements, um, and in some cases, waiving requirements as to who can practice telemedicine. So in some states, it's only physicians, but they were they're now allowing PAs and um, NPs to practice. So it's, it's been across the board, really a lot of changes. So just to like give people perspective, before these all these changes, Medicare spent less than one-tenth of one percent of its budget on telemedicine. I think that's uh, going to increase substantially. Yes. Medicare only covered telemedicine in health professional shortage areas, only covered it in the clinics. Now it's covered regardless of geography and essentially regardless of location. Is that correct? Yeah. In fact, um, I have a slide that I always joke um, because Excel wouldn't actually allow me to make the line um, because out of a $950 billion budget, it was like 22 million. <laughs> so, so I would show this pie chart and, or this, um, you know, this pie chart and then there would be like this little tiny line that I basically had to draw in on that. <laughs> so minuscule of spending. Um, but to give you an idea, so our members of the Alliance for Connected Care, we have three health systems, Intermountain, Stanford, and MedStar. And I checked in with them yesterday. Intermountain did 100 um, telemedicine visits per week prior to March, and now they're doing uh, 10,000 per day. Uh, Stanford University had less than 1% of their visits in January were telemedicine visits. And now they have 70% of the visits that they do are, um, are telemedicine and they're doing uh, 3,000 visits a day. Um, American Well, which is another one of our members, is doing 30,000 virtual visits a day. So can you imagine if you're a telemedicine platform and you're thinking about you know, the worst possible flu season, the kind of capacity that you would need to have? Well, you know, quadruple that and you know that that's the capacity you need so they're really um, onboarding physicians as fast as possible the health systems have the advantage of having physicians that they can convert into telemedicine providers but the vendors have to go out and you know seek and credential and bring onto the platform new providers to actually keep up with the demand uh, you mentioned american well uh, our next chat talk is on tuesday and dr cynthia horner the medical director for american well is going to be joining oh, great us. great um, so all these changes, at least the ones I'm aware of, at least on the federal level, have all been indicated that they're temporary. There's no end date that I'm aware of associated with any of these. Uh, are they going to become permanent? The, um, it's all within the context of the public health emergency. So once the public health emergency is, um, I guess, undeclared, um, then we go back to the way things were. So I'll say a couple of things about permanency. It really is up to us as advocates and consumers um, to frame success for Capitol Hill because this cannot be made permanent by HHS or CMS. The Trump administration has got to take, it takes congressional action to change the statute. So um, 
if we can show uh, that healthcare quality didn't suffer, that that we didn't have um, you know excess visits, some some I, I've been I've been talking to a couple of actuaries about how do we discount. COVID in looking at the number of visits that we had, because one of the things that the Congressional Budget Office always says is that if you give people the ability to easily access clinicians, they're just going to do it um, all the time. You know, they, they don't have to leave their house and they're just going to be dialing up their doctor. So they always see the Congressional Budget Office always said that CBO, I mean, that um, telemedicine would increase federal spending significantly in Medicare because people would just be using it when they didn't need it. So somehow we have to discount the excess visits because of COVID and say, you know, the regular primary care, the regular, um, you know, to, to the extent that there is any post-operative care, those kinds of things were just a replacement of um, in-office visits. So we're, we're right now trying to figure out what is the framework for the cost structure. And then we're also talking to the NCQA um, and other quality folks to how do we measure quality. Um, and then we put together that the patient satisfaction data and we have a storyline then that we can take to Congress to try to make this permanent. The last thing I'll say is that these members of Congress now have constituents who have tried it and liked it. Um, you know, we've always faced this chicken and egg problem where we wanted it in Medicare, but no Medicare beneficiaries really had ever, you know, utilized it or experienced it. So it's not like seniors were telling their members of Congress, you know, we want Medicare to cover this. So we do have that advantage now because of this um, pandemic. So it sounds like for these changes to become permanent, uh, it requires congressional action and then approval by the president that these temporary changes are tied to the current uh, declaration of a public health emergency. If that way, these temporary changes would go away and we'd be left with a big gap between what we were providing and what we could be providing going forward. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about some the economic ones first. So a lot of these businesses, I assume, don't have facility fees uh, uh, tied to them. So if someone comes, sees one of my colleagues at the University of Rochester, uh, the medical center hospital gets a $100 facility fee for each follow-up visit in addition to $80 or $90 per physician fee. In some cases, the facility fee is actually bigger than the professional or the doctor fee. These visits right now, I don't think have a facility fee. So is that true? And then what are the economic implications for medical centers, which aren't maybe geared up to do this, and I guess potential savings to Medicare? Yeah, so this is one of the disadvantages to things happening so fast, is that it was, there wasn't necessarily a all-inclusive stakeholder process to figure out the best way to do this. It was simply granting the secretary the waiver authority um, over these things. So um, we would we really do have to get together as a community and create a consensus-based um, proposal for Congress that would include how do you make some um, at least partially whole and, you know, not at the same time, you know, we don't want to, um, again, increase costs too much. We have to go back to the program integrity discussion. What is the appropriate way to put guardrails around this while still making it workable. Um, we have to address the, um, the, the allied health professionals and, and physical therapists, you know, occupational therapists, they're not currently able to do any of this work. So there's like, there's a lot of issues that are much more nuanced that we have some time to think through. 
But that's our next step after getting through this flurry of changes and what it all means and helping people understand it. The next step then is to construct what we would like to see on a long-term basis and uh, facility fees as part of that discussion. Uh, and Canada, my understanding is they have a technology fee that uh, helped foster the adoption of the telemedicine there. Yeah, the, the one challenge with technology is this just not how CMS pays. You know, they generally pay, you can be a DME um, classified as a, a durable medical equipment, but, you know, mainly CMS pays for physician time that is supposed to account for the, um, you know, the office um, costs and the technology costs. So, for example, in 2018, when we were able to get remote patient monitoring covered, we didn't have um, payment for the actual device. It was payment for the time spent um, reading the data and changing the care plan accordingly. And that, um, and the CPT and the RUC um, really took into account how much the technology might cost as well as, um, you know, the, the office uh, um, expenses. So I think all of that gets built in rather than a separate technology. Do you see the public health emergency state being declared ended anytime soon? Uh, and if so, what happens if there are second or third waves of coronavirus that happen and people can't go re really require telemedicine because it's not safe to go into the healthcare facility? Yeah. I have to say, I think this public health emergency is going to go on for a long time. I mean, obviously, this is unprecedented. I, you know, public health emergencies tend to stick around for a long time, and not necessarily a long time, but a while after um, the emergency seems to have abated. So if we see an abatement in um, August, let's say, and then it comes back at the end of November, um, you know, I don't think they're going to uh, necessarily turn off all the public health emergency authorities and then have to turn it back on again. I think that they're going to want to wait and see already, you know, public health experts are saying we're going to see a second wave in the fall. So I would be very surprised if this did not go until at least um, mid-2021. Um, I will say that one of the changes that, that did have a time frame on it related to telemedicine is um, a change to the IRS code related to health savings accounts that people hold health savings accounts. There's 32 million people in the United States and they're mostly in the large group market. They have high deductible plans. Um, they have to pay full price for telemedicine and under the legislative change in the third package, um, HSA holders could be offered telemedicine for free or, or discounted. That change goes until December 31st of 2021. So it's an 18-month change. Um, so I don't know, maybe that gives a hint as to how long Congress thinks this might go on. Um, are there any other health policy changes related to telemedicine that you want to highlight at either the federal or state level? Um, I, well, I just will say um, one, one thing that we have been very pleased to see is the waiver of the, um, the cross-state licensure requirements. And, um, you know, we continue to have a challenge with every state doing something different. And so we've been keeping an updated chart on the COVID page of the Alliance for Connected Care. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it just goes to illustrate how difficult it is to know which state you can practice in um, and what level of provider you have to be. Do you have to have an established relationship? Do you have to fill out paperwork? You know, it's different in every state. And um, there's a compact called the Emergency Medical Assistance Compact 
that um, they put out a telemedicine draft executive order. So it would be great if um, governors would use that draft executive order because then we create some uniformity across all the states in terms of um, state licensure. But that is an issue that we plan to continue working on. So I would say besides the Medicare reimbursement piece, this cross-state licensure piece is a really big deal. So let me dive into that. And I want to remind our listeners, you're going to have a chance to ask Krista all your questions. As, as you probably gathered, there's not much she doesn't know. So if you want to go really technical <laughs> alphabet soup, she's happy to go uh, that uh, detailed. My understanding is right now, I could see a patient with Parkinson's disease in Oklahoma, even though I don't have an Oklahoma uh, license. Uh, it seems odd that if I end up caring for someone in Oklahoma uh, for the next six months and we have changes and then I won't be able to care for that patient in Oklahoma uh, when the public health uh, emergency ends is what are these yes, exactly. for the Medicare. So what's uh, the plan for Medicare's changes? So um, interestingly, Medicare can pay across state lines, but they can't dictate the practice of medicine across state lines. So when, um, you know, Seema Burma or the vice president or, you know, Azar, when they talk about cross-state lines, they're talking about payments. So Medicare did waive, Medicare and Medicaid waived payment across state lines. So, um, so you can, um, you know, claim reimbursement, but the question of whether or not you can do it, in, it as a doctor and the standard of care is up to the state. So, um, you know, we've always wanted to do something about that. And the nurse, uh, the RNs have a really effective compact. I think some, somewhere in like 35 states have um, the RN compact, but there's no compact for an NP or a PA. And the um, physician compact still requires you to be licensed in the state in which you're operating. And so you have to you know, get licensed, pay the licensing fees, pay the renewal fees, um, and you also have to be prospective in the way that you're considering care. You, you, you can't just have someone from Oklahoma on an emergency basis who needs a neurologist, you know, with a specialty in Parkinson's just contact you. You have to think, okay, you know, in three months, I'm going to treat someone in Oklahoma. So this experience will enable us to illustrate that there could be a national framework for licensure. It doesn't necessarily mean that the medical boards don't, you know, control still the the disciplinary action and um, you know the the actual licensing of someone in a home a home state, but there could be a lot more uniformity and permissibility across state lines. I'll say one more thing, which is, if you think about the bar for law, there are significantly different laws in you know state to state. In my opinion, there aren't significantly clinical differences in treating humans in um, Oklahoma versus New York. And if you have a center of excellence in New York related to Parkinson's, you should be able to treat patients in Oklahoma. So right now, just to be clear, Medicare allows, would pay me uh, to see someone in Oklahoma, but I can't see someone in Oklahoma unless I have an Oklahoma license? Uh, that was pre-COVID. So yes. Um, I would have to consult our lengthy chart on our, uh, on our um, website to figure out exactly what Oklahoma did, but most states have waived some portion of um, their state licensing requirements in order to allow, um, you know, capacity management. If there's a lot of capacity um, in one state and the other state needs people, then um, you could practice across state lines. So those were state uh, actions. Uh, yes. 
Yes. Not federal, not a federal action. Because the federal does that. Doesn't have. Um, one more thing, only because I'm really interested in this topic. Uh, the VA obviously allows physicians uh, to practice across uh, state lines right now. If you're in, one of my colleagues is in Philadelphia, she can see veterans in New Jersey or in Virginia or Maryland uh, via telemedicine. Uh, that's a federal program. Why doesn't Medicare follow suit? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, policymakers will say, well, that's a closed system. That's different. This is, you know, VA is um, more like Kaiser than it is, you know, like a fee-for-service program. So there was a bill back in, um, I want to say like 2013, that was sponsored by Devin Nunez and Frank Pallone. Um, which is kind of funny because I can't imagine those two getting together on a bill today, but they, they got together on a bill that said, if you accept Medicare payment, you have to have, an, you can have a national license. And oh my goodness, man, that really caused a, a furor. Um, so, um, you know, that bill had no chance, and but it's, but it laid out a marker. And so now if we can come up with a system that includes the medical boards, um, you know, it still has things controlled at the state level, but have a national framework we could potentially get somewhere. Uh, we talked a lot about clinical care. I know that's your expertise. I'm going to push you a little bit uh, to the changes that are happening in clinical care. Are they going to apply to clinical research? 95% uh, of clinical trials have been paused uh, throughout the country. Drug development for everything but COVID is essentially halted. Uh, are we are any of these changes going to enable virtual clinical trials to take hold? Yeah, so the FDA did release guidance that you can see a patient through um, vir a virtual means, either a remote patient, so you can either remotely monitor them or you can have telemedicine visits in place of them um, uh, coming in. I think that we could make a, a really good argument that that should continue permanently. Um, in part because we have so many peripherals now. You don't, you know, you can um, send a patient home with a device and the necessary peripherals um, to enable them to, you know, participate in the clinical trial virtually and not have to schlep, you know, to the hospital um, once a week. So um, I think the best arguments there are, um, you know, patient convenience, being able to get more volunteers, um, more efficiency, and, and then um, and, and, and if we can collect data now that says, um, you know, we didn't have any less um, interaction or um, accuracy on measuring vitals, you know, during this time period, um, that would enable us then to make the argument to FDA that we're not suffering in um, quality of measurement um, by allowing people to be virtual. I, I think one of our members, um, Care Innovations, is doing virtual clinical trials right now because they have both remote monitoring and telemedicine capability. So they could um, equip a patient to send their biometric data um, asynchronously, but then they also have the ability to synchronously, like in real time, have a video visit with the patient. And I, I think probably those two things are um, necessary. Um, two necessary components to make this um, work. Another big issue for virtual clinical trials is the ability to prescribe investigational devices or drugs across state lines. Any insights there? Yeah, so um, that gets a little bit more complicated because I think that um, at least my experience with the uh, 
um, waiving of the DEA rules around um, uh, controlled substances is that it's truly because of an emergency. I think people worry a lot more about prescribing. Um, so that one might be a little bit more difficult, but the thing is, is if you can't, you can't conduct a clinical trial without it. So if we can put the clinical trial box around it um, and make it restricted to that, that is definitely a possibility. I want to turn to the stimulus. Uh, any changes that you want to highlight from the CARES Act that applies to telemedicine? Um, so there were, there was a $200 million um, FCC uh, grant. So for those of you who are interested, there's an open application process right now. Um, there are a lot of um, different um, entities that are eligible, you know, rural health clinics and FQHCs and, um, and it, the grants are about a million dollars per grantee that you can use for broadband services, use it for devices, um, to purchase devices. Um, so that's one to highlight um, that's for right now, the FCC money. Um, there, there were, um, there, well, there was a $100 billion hospital fund, which I'm assuming some of it will go to, to telemedicine, but there, there isn't really much detail around how much that money can be spent. Um, there was no money for uh, physician groups. So there's a, there's a real effort now to think through, there was some, I take it back, some, but, but I think that there is, the physician groups are really hurting right now because people are not going to the doctor and a lot of physician groups weren't set up to do telemedicine. So, you know, if you want to scramble and set up a, you know, an Apple, you know, or a, you know, Skype system, you could, but I think a lot of um, physician groups are just not seeing patients. So I think in the next iteration of the supplemental, you'll see something much more specific for physician groups. Um, and they're really mobilizing that. It's not just the hospitals that are, um, that are challenged. You mentioned the first care act, there was a hundred billion dollars uh, earmarked for uh, hospitals. As you probably know, most major medical centers are losing somewhere between two to $8,000 a day. Mayo Clinic has already announced uh, furloughs. Uh, what are the prospects for additional funding for hospitals and medical centers in the second stimulus? Um, you know, I, I think pretty good, but I'm going to take a little twist here. And of course, as a policy person, we're always trying to think, you know, is there a policy window opening here for a, a real change in American healthcare? And I would like to see hospitals being able to restart elective surgeries with a care in the home component that people can convalesce at home and that you could actually have a care team that can go into the home through telemedicine, through remote monitoring, but also actual, um, you know, caregivers, nurses or physicians or whatever doing house calls. If, if we could, if we could couple that, if we can increase an, you know, care in the home and, and make the home a, a, a medical site of care, it would change the hospital business going forward, obviously, because, um, you know, hospitals would be used for very acute services. Um, so, you know, for some hospitals, it might be very scary to think about because you don't necessarily want the home to be in a long-term site of care, but you could also think about it as a long-term change in business model. 
But in the short term, you could get back to doing elective surgeries if we could figure out a way to, um, you know, to reimburse for care in the home um, more appropriately. So yesterday we had Dr. David Brayler uh, on chat talks, and he was saying use that the days of 5% increases in healthcare costs across the country are going to come to an end, that health systems are going to have to figure out how to deliver care less expensively. You seem to be suggesting the same. Yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, heads in beds is the revenue model of health systems. Um, but if you want to get back to doing elective surgery, you can't be keeping people in the hospital for a long time. And we can just do so much more in the home now than we did before. So if, you know, again, it would be a long-term change in business model, but in, in the immediate, you could get back to work. Uh, so Dr. Bruce Leff, a geriatrician at Johns Hopkins over 20 years ago, created the hospital at home model. One of his chief barriers to caring for older adults with, like, for example, pneumonia was his classic example, was that Medicare didn't reimburse for hospital level care provided in the home, including visiting doctors, IV antibiotics, IV fluids, visiting nurses. Uh, are we likely to see hospital at home become part of mainstay medicine? Well, I'm, I'm actually working with a group or we're, we're brainstorming policy ideas right now um, and trying to pitch it as, you know, temporary, get hospitals back to work. Um, but it also is, and I think everybody recognizes this, an experiment with how much more we can do in the home. Because right now, most of the home, the complex care that's is done through Medicare Advantage. So Medicare Advantage, they receive a risk adjustment payment based on, you know, how sick you are. And what they'll do is they'll take their sickest patients and they, they can contract with vendors that can send interdisciplinary teams into the home. So if you've got, um, you know, complex comorbidities that, um, you know, or your frail elderly or whatever, you can get a physician, nurse, you know, um, behavioral health specialist, social worker, or whatever, as, to, as a team that's your team, but it essentially becomes your virtual healthcare team, and you get 100% of your care in the home, um, unless obviously you need hospital-level care. And that can happen because Medicare Advantage plans are capitated, and so they just make, you know, the calculation that if they want to stay within their if their capitation, less, um, you know, that they can reduce hospitalizations and reduce costs by doing this. So if there is already experience in the marketplace with this, it's just not in fee-for-service programs. Um, other things that you think might be included in the second stimulus or other things you think might not be included in the second stimulus that people are counting on? Well, the, you know, relief for health plans is keeps in and out, in and out, in and out. You know, you wake up every morning, you're like, is the relief for the health plans in or out today? Um, so we might see some um, funding for, for health plans. That one's a little bit more complicated because I think at first we all thought, oh my goodness, the health plans are going to take a major hit because all this really expensive care is going to happen. But on the other hand, I don't think we all foresaw the reduction in elective surgeries. So there's a real reduction in um, expensive care on one side of the ledger and then an increase on the other side of the ledger. So I'm not sure how the ledger balances out. And I think that's why there's a lot of uncertainty around whether health plans will get um, subsidies in the next supplemental. I have to imagine health plans expenditures have to be plummeting. Maybe in New York City they're up, but I imagine most of the country is down. I imagine Medicare's expenditures are, are down. 
Yeah, I talked to one health plan yesterday who said that they're modeling every day. Their model is updated every day. So they, they all know um, how much they're gonna make or lose, I think. Um, maybe the lighter side, you're normally walking up and down Capitol Hill, uh, going to the hallways of congressmen and, women and senators. Uh, you're obviously not doing that today. How is policy making being affected by COVID? Um, well, the same way everything else is. We're having Zoom calls and uh, conference calls and lots of emails. Um, I have to admit, I kind of hope that the phone call stuff sticks around because going up to the Hill and, you know, you got to go to the Hill for a half an hour meeting and, you know, it takes time to get up there and cab receipts and everything. So in some ways it would be nice if we did have a few more um, phone calls going forward because almost no Hill meetings take place um, virtually. So that is obviously changed and um, Hill staff are all still working and available and trying to formulate bills. I just got a copy of a new bill last night. So alleged council must still be working. Um, and uh, it seems like still operating. We're just not doing it in person. I think like most other American businesses. Are the senators and representatives in their offices when they're meeting? Are they meeting virtually? Yeah, they're meeting virtually. I actually saw Nancy Pelosi the other day on a, um, a virtual call and I couldn't tell if she was in a hotel or at home because her the place was so neat. You know, <laughs> Maybe she has like a model home that she goes to, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people have lost their jobs at when I wrote my thing, it was 16 million Americans have lost their jobs in the pandemic. I think it might be close to 25 million now. Uh, with that loss, many are poised to lose their health insurance or they're left scrambling for health insurance through COBRA exchanges or Medicaid. They're all losing this in the setting of reductions in income. Uh, has Medicare for all met its moment? Man, this year has been full of irony, hasn't it? That's ironic that Bernie Sanders drops out and now we're talking about universal coverage. Um, certainly Medicaid is getting a lot of attention. Um, the, the estimate could be that we could see uh, as many as 30 million Americans um, signing up for Medicaid. I mean, there's 75 million pre-COVID um, Medicaid beneficiaries. So that would be a pretty massive increase. Um, I you know, there's actually, I saw a really good analysis yesterday that matched up the unemployment claim by state with the number of Medicaid potential, potential new Medicaid beneficiaries that might go on the rolls. Um, so I think that Medicaid is going to do its job as a safety net program. Um, and so I don't know that we're going to, there's going to be an argument for necessarily for um you know, for universal coverage, because the $100 billion fund that um, was in the third supplemental is, there is money in there for the uninsured. There's an additional billion dollars for testing uninsured patients. And then again, people have the safety net of, of Medicaid that, um, you know, unfortunately many will fall into. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure that there's, there is gonna be a real universal coverage argument. So you're saying that Medicaid beneficiaries currently 70 million, 30 more are going to go in. So that's 100 million Medicaid beneficiaries in the U.S. Yeah, well, that's the top end estimate. That's an estimate. So just so that's one out of every three Americans. 
Yeah, well, right now, Medicaid pays for 50% of all births in the United States. And that was pre COVID. It so. pays for 50% of all births. 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 Babies being born. Oh, births, births, thank you. <laughs> so uh, states uh, can't be happy about having 30 million more uh, beneficiaries because states pay for at least a half of the, the cost of Medicaid. Yeah, um, there's a, one of the holdups, you know, the news we, we hear about the holdup of this next supplemental is the um, small business loans, the small business um, administration has run out of money. And so the big headlines are around how the Republicans and Democrats are fighting over that. It is not actually that that is holding up the bill. Part of what's holding up the bill is the aid to states. So the Democrats want to basically create a you know, state stabilization fund where um, you know, the states would be getting an infusion of federal money just as like a family would, um, because obviously the state budgets have now completely changed because of this. And um, Republicans, you know, they don't want money to go towards pensions and you know, roads and bridges. They want to make sure that the money's being spent on um, coronavirus-related expenditures. So, um, you know, the, there, this is part of the debate. Like, how much money do states get and for what? Um, and is it the responsibility of the federal government to bail out states that have seen their tax receipts plummet? Um, but there will be something that, um, some sort of additional funding that goes to state governments. So I'm going to start taking questions uh, from our audience in just a minute. So 100 million Medicaid beneficiaries, there's 50 million Medicare beneficiaries. That means one out of every two Americans is getting their health insurance from either a, from a federal or state uh, program. That's correct. There was two weeks ago an employer coalition formed to um, promote the value of employer-sponsored health insurance. I think there are some employers that are worried um, because they've, you know, I've always been surprised by this, but employers actually really do want to provide employee benefits. It is a recruitment and retention tool that's very important to them. And um, so they're going to fight to keep it um, and keep the commercial market um, intact with employers as, as, um, as the sponsoring organizations. I think just a bunch of medical center CFOs just got indigestion thinking that uh, half patients are the uh, Medicaid or Medicare uh, rates. Exactly. Um, How are we going to cost you? Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we got lots of questions. Uh, what's the best way to ensure older, adult, uh, older adults, especially those over 80, have access to telehealth? How many over the age of 80? How can they get telehealth? So presumably Medicare would be by far almost the... the yeah, I, I would say, well, I, everything I've read is that older Americans are getting much more tech, tech savvy. Um, I would say for those who are in skilled nursing facilities, uh, the, new, the new policy changes will impact them because now skilled nursing facilities will be able to have their patients visiting um, physicians through telemedicine, which, which hadn't happened before. Um, home health now can access telemedicine or that, that didn't happen before. Um, and, you know, I'm assuming that they're getting uh, pretty good with, with Zoom and other things, just like the rest of us. I mean, I've never had a Zoom account before, but if you want to communicate with your family and your grandkids, 
gotta get get virtual. So maybe things maybe things will change because of this. So we see people as old as 92 with Parkinson's disease in their home, but for nursing homes, generally physicians or clinicians need to be credentialed at those nursing homes. Does that change or is that still going to be a barrier going forward? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I have stumped Chris Adroback. <laughs> <laughs> Credentialing in nursing homes is not in my, uh, not in my repertoire. <laughs> uh, if telemedicine has reached its tipping point, uh, what changes do you hope to see on medical education and training? Well, um, one of the waivers actually that happened is that medical students can now bill using telemedicine and um, supervising physicians can also supervise through telemedicine. So, um, you know, when you're a resident, you're right now, you could use telemedicine. Um, I, I would hope that it would be um, part of the curriculum, although I don't think that it would be much more than an etiquette class. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, there's virtual etiquette. How do you make people feel at ease? How do you get them to tell you what their symptoms are? Um, but I think a lot of it's pretty intuitive, to be honest. How are we doing? Are we being polite enough? <laughs> We've learned our etiquette in the last three weeks, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> any changes to graduate medical education in any of these uh, bills passed or proposed? Um, no, but I, I did actually hear from a foundation um, recently that's trying to raise money to keep medical students um, working because the, a lot of the GME um, has been shut off because, um, you know, their hospitals are just sending the residents home. Uh, so there haven't been any um, changes other than the supervision change, changes I just mentioned on telemedicine. Um, that I know of. I, I know that there are a lot of displaced uh, residents and, and graduate students right now. My friend and the great gerontologist, Dr. Carrie Burnight, uh, asks, thank you for this wonderful information on Medicare reimbursement. If telehealth changes become permanent, do you see CMS setting up lower reimbursement rates for telehealth? Um, I don't. Um, I don't. They, they've only added to the list of codes that are eligible for telemedicine, and they are all codes that you put a telemedicine modifier on them, but you bill as if you were in person. So there are no changes. Um, at least 20 states have um, parity laws for commercial market so that if a, um, an insurance company offers telemedicine, they have to offer it at parity with in-person costs. Um, so I think the, the prevailing norm is that telemedicine uh, will be paid at the office rate if it's a physician with an office. Um, in the um, vendor market, they do charge less. I think it's about $60 for a telemedicine visit, um, like, like an urgent care visit. So um, I don't, well, I don't think Medicare will ever change. The commercial market might differentiate between you know, urgent care and, um, you know, low acuity episodic visits versus, you know, a long-term primary care relationship. So, um, you know, the commercial market, I think, is where to watch in terms of the, um, the different kinds of um, care that's reimbursed at different levels. Uh, Dr. Dr. Heidi Schwartz asks, can you use improved access to care, particularly for specialists, as an argument to Congress for why telemedicine should be continued? If CMS approves more permanent reimbursement of telemedicine, do you feel that other insurers, private insurers, will follow suit? Yes, I do. 
I've seen private insurers actually getting on the, you know, lobbying for these changes to fee-for-service Medicare. Um, they want physicians in their networks to be using telemedicine, and I think they feel like if there's Medicare fee-for-service reimbursement, that physicians will adopt the workflow changes and invest in the technology needed to make telemedicine a regular part of their practice, and that's what um, private insurers want to see too. So I don't think that they're going to penalize, um, you know, their networks for um, investing in these services. Uh, Catherine Churan worked on the first remote uh, clinical trial ever conducted ten years ago by Pfizer and Craig Lipset and, and her, and she just comments that some states uh, will allow virtual trials. I think prescribing across state lines but it's uh, working with individual medical boards, which is not a model that scales well. Um, Cornelia Kim has a lot of questions for you. Uh, can you elaborate on the, and this may be outside your thing, but can you elaborate on the direct to uh, patient shipment of study drug, assuming the products are not regulated by the DEA? Can you prescribe, do direct shipment of study drugs, small molecules uh, to people in their uh, homes? This may be outside of my um, area of expertise. I don't know. I got a other people that state uh, regulated too. But anyway, are there people who are experts in this area that you recommend? Um, you know, I actually would contact the state pharmacy boards because um, you know they understand the. Um, different standards of, um, you know, dispensing, and I would consider shipping someone dispensing of a drug. So I would, I would reach out to them. There's a national association of pharmacy boards too. Doctor, thank you, Dr. Adam Dicker from uh, Jefferson Healthcare. Asked, how do you judge the quality of telehealth? Are there parameters, and will they have any implications for reimbursement or for Medicare? So this is what we're going to work with NCQA on. I actually have a call with them this afternoon. Um, we're trying to come up with a way to measure quality. Um, and we have different interests. The telemedicine community has an interest in showing that telemedicine is high quality. Uh, NCQA and others have an interest in being able to measure the plan, health plans for purposes of star ratings and, um, and other things. But if you recall, you know, health plans have to um, report HEDIS measures and, um, you know, some, how do you, how do you think about quality when you're actually trying to keep your patients away from your office? And how do you think about quality when you can't touch a patient? And so um, we really have to come up with a new paradigm. Um, and I think that's what we hope to do in partnership with NCQA. Uh, in terms of um, just the overall question, I get back to the program integrity piece of this. I work with you know, the Alliance for Connected Care is, you know, really good actors with high quality medicine. How do we make sure that, you know, we don't have doc in a box popping up and, um, you know, just serving patients without um, a way to, you know, verify credentials and, um, and actual, you know, the care, the quality of the care that they're providing. So I do think that some of that goes back to the program integrity guardrails that we have to think through. Uh, many medical centers are using telemedicine to care for their existing patients. My guess is Stanford, 70% you know, of visits are existing uh, patients that already have. We have a question, what about older adults in low-income communities, specific, specifically independent living facilities? How will they be able to utilize telemedicine? 
So um, as you'll recall, I said that the first bill had unworkable program integrity guardrails and it, the actual specifics of that were that they required that a patient have a relationship with the provider within the last three years. So you had to have a Medicare claim with the provider before the provider could treat you and be paid for it. So um, there were some challenges with that, clearly. Um, one of them is just, I don't know if you're a new patient or not, and it's a high compliance bar to go up and go back and find out. So I'm not gonna you know, claim payment for this visit if um, I might get you know, slapped with a false claim um, uh, penalty. So that was um, difficult. And then the other difficulty is then, what about new patients? And, and also, what about um, someone who was 64 years old and in commercial insurance and came and saw you, and now they're 66, and they want to have a virtual visit, but you didn't trigger a Medicare claim with them because the last time you saw them, they were on commercial. So that, that section eventually got eliminated. So you, know, you no longer have to have a pre-existing relationship. And many state medical boards have also waived existing relationship requirements for telemedicine. So, um, so again, most of these, I mean, I don't think Intermountain had 10,000 people per day that are existing patients. I think they're all seeing new patients. Um, and it was actually funny because for those of you who are interested on our website, on our COVID um, page, we have a webinar that we did with Stanford, Intermountain, and MedStar. And Intermountain had this chart where they had really low levels of, of telemedicine um, visits. And then all of a sudden, one of the Utah jazz players got COVID and it just like went off the charts, you know, like everybody wanted to check in with their doctor at that point um, because, um, you know, suddenly COVID became real. They knew someone who had it. And um, so, you know, all of those patients can't be existing patients for sure. Um, so if you're now, um, all the, to the facility question, again, the waiver includes facilities. So, um, you know, you essentially can be anywhere. You can be at your house, you can be at a SNF or, um, you know, wherever to, to utilize telemedicine. And I'm assuming that the staff in many of these facilities have already set up telemedicine capabilities because they can't take the patients out of the facility. Uh, can you tell us what your website is? Yes, it's connectwithcare.org. And if you go to resources, there's a COVID page. That's connectwithcare.org. We'll put that in the chat. Uh, I like this next question. Many times the patient voice carries more weight than with legislators and policymakers in the physician voice. Are you aware of patient advocacy groups that will also push for telemedicine use post pandemic? Yes, in fact, you can, uh, if you go on our website, you can see our advisory board and they are uh, mostly, uh, they're patient and provider groups. So we have Parkinson's, MS, ALS, um, um, all the mental health groups. I mean, there are a lot of, um, of, of, of patient voices there. And, you know, I would say in general, the patient voices in Washington are organized by disease or age group. So we have AARP for, you know, older people, and they represent, you know, consumer voices for older people. And then we have um, you know, March of Dimes for kids or, and then, um, and then the rest of the consumer groups are generally organized by, um, by patient, um, by patient groups. There aren't too many groups that are just, you know, healthcare consumers for change kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, so we coordinate on a regular basis with all of our advisory board members and, um, and I expect to see them all at the table trying to push for these, uh, changes to be made permanent. 
Uh, one more audience question, then I'll give you one one to, before we wrap up. What changes surprised you uh, the most in regards to telehealth policy uh, changes as a result of COVID? I gotta say, it wasn't necessarily an individual change, it was the speed. I mean, I'm not kidding you when I said like we had a little toothpick and we were chipping away. I mean, we, like we considered a major, major win last year when we got them to cover substance abuse treatment with co-occurring behavioral health conditions. And that was only because of the opioid epidemic. I mean, we needed a massive, you know, um, detrimental epidemic of drug abuse before we could get substance abuse covered. And we just thought like, oh my gosh, this is the beginning. And, and like, you know, we got dialysis check-ins covered and, you know, just little, little um, wins along the way. And then, and then within the span of three weeks, it was just like every barrier just fell. And, and so I think that was the biggest surprise is just how fast it happened. So the current administration's gotten a lot of criticism for their handling of COVID and that may be justified. Uh, who deserves credit for making these policy changes for telemedicine? Um, HHS, Azar and, um, and Seema Verma. They, you know, first time I went and saw Seema Verma when she became the CMS administrator, she said, I've got telehealth written right in the middle of my whiteboard. Uh, you know, I really wanna push out remote care, digital health. And, um, and she, she has done it every step of the way. Um, Azar has also been very committed um, to virtual care, and um, I worked in the Obama administration, and um, you know I know they were considering it, but but this administration really came in again with a sledgehammer and um, and broke down a lot of those barriers. So one nice thing about the current administration, and uh, kudos to Seema Verma, uh, Seema Verma and Alex Azar. Um, So uh, you've been in this uh, health policy for a little 20 plus years. Uh, you've been championing digital medicine for at least 10, if not uh, more. Um, do you have predictions for what we'll see post pandemic? Oh man, this is a you know fun parlor game for nerdy health policy people in Washington. Um, I think that we'll see, I mean, A, obviously, I would like to see a long-term change in um, virtual care. Um, I think there's going to be major consolidation um, this time of insurance companies purchasing um, primary care and other um, physician offices because I think some physicians are going to come back and just say, you know, this is this is a lot of trouble and I don't want to have to rebuild my practice. I'm going to sell it. Um, Optum was already um, buying up physician practices all over the country. Private equity has been buying up um, physician practices. So I, we saw a lot of consolidation of hospital systems buying up physician practices, but when we come back um, from this, I think it's really gonna be um, health plans. And um, so consolidation is gonna be a big, a big issue. Care in the home, I think will change. I, we gotta see more care in the home. Um, and I, I do think that there will be a change in the kinds of services that are able to be offered in the home. And you know, home health, when we think about home health, we think about um, low-skilled, um, you know, slow-skilled workers and activities of daily living kind of stuff. But I think after this, the home health will take on a new meaning of, um, of complex, uh, more complex care in the home. Um, and uh, we're going to see uh, some pressure, budget pressure on um, both Medicare and Medicaid. I think um, Braylor was right that we've got to reduce the cost of health care because we're going to be 
in a really deep, deep budget hole. And, uh, and healthcare is a very expensive and sort of um, jumps out off the budget page. So um, besides defense, I think healthcare is probably going to see some cuts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology and check out our website at chettalks.org.